need to start with facts, um, real facts, not those alternative facts that the administration has become known for. We got to a point not based on a legal issue, but based on a trust issue, where the level of trust between the president and General Flynn had eroded to the point where he felt he had to make a change. It's a stance of common sense. Maybe a certain toughness, but it's really more than toughness. It's a stance of common sense. It's time to make America great again. Join the movement. Caruso. The Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast. Time to dream big. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. All right. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Welcome to the Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday or Really, whenever you were listening to the podcast, um, thank you for tuning in. And uh, listen, my allegiance is to you. So happy Valentine's Day to you. And this is what we do on the Neil A. Crystal Show podcast every single day. Um, again, recording in the evening. So let me just tell you quickly before we move on. And a, a lot of busy news. You probably heard about the Sean Spicer um, news conference in which he talked about uh, Michael Flynn's resignation. We'll get into that on the podcast. Um, I also want to talk about some of these dangerous intelligence leaks, and I have examples I'm going to go over with you. It's going to shock you. Um, And we'll talk about draining the swamp and Betsy DeVos. And also, uh, a New York Times reporter uh, allegedly what is called slut-shaming the first lady. So that's uh, you really don't want to miss, and we'll talk about um, defense and all of that later on. But let me start uh, first off on yesterday's podcast, the Monday podcast. You heard about education and all of that. It was posted on iTunes today, so um, my apologies for that. Actually, had um, not that uh, it's that big of a deal, but had some tech issues on my end. So I actually thank God that we do the Facebook live because without that, I wouldn't have backup audio. So I was able to use that backup audio. Um, we had a uh, tech issues last night after we recorded and I lost some of the show audio. Um, and as a result, I also found out that my computer, I had to delete a lot of files off of there. Um, because technology is only as good as the space that you have on the computer. So my apologies for that. Um, that was an hour and a half podcast. We talked about the White House news yesterday. The Michael Flynn news broke while we were recording the podcast. So we'll get into that on today's podcast. And then um, also uh, yesterday we had an exclusive interview with Daniel Blanchard of the American uh, Federation uh, of Teachers Union in Connecticut, inner city school teachers, also a WS veteran, and he joined the program for an hour. He was fantastic talking about school choice and, you know, coming from a union perspective, um, what he said was really surprising because he wasn't political and he didn't seem to mind President Trump's uh, stance on education, and you'll hear from him uh, today because he met with Betsy DeVos and his education team today at the White House, but obviously the big news coming out of the White House today is Lieutenant General Michael Flynn last night put in his letter 
of resignation. And I'll let you hear what Spicer had to say, the details there. Um, I think it was a move that President Trump had to make. There are a lot of different reports coming out today. So there are some reports uh, early on that said it was um, that Vice President Mike Pence uh, felt betrayed and he forced um, the issue to President Trump to force the resignation of Lieutenant uh, General Michael Flynn. Um, then later reports said that uh, Pence didn't even know that he was lied to until February 9th, leading to his resignation last night on the 13th. So I don't know what to believe, and obviously the Trump administration is um, denies a lot of these news reports, and you don't know where um, their sources are, a lot of unnamed sources. Um, so let me just tell you, here's what Sean Spicer said. Get it straight from the source. This is what the White House said. Um, about the resignation of Michael Flynn, and then we'll react. We've been reviewing and evaluating this issue with respect to General Flynn on a daily basis for a few weeks, trying to ascertain the truth. We got to a point not based on a legal issue, but based on a trust issue, where the level of trust between the President and General Flynn had eroded to the point where he felt he had to make a change. The President was very concerned that General Flynn had misled the Vice President and others. He was also very concerned in light of sensitive subjects dealt with by that position of national security advisors like China, North Korea, and the Middle East, that the president must have complete and unwavering trust for the person in that position. The evolving and eroding level of trust as a result of this situation and a series of other questionable instances is what led the president to ask for General Flynn's resignation. Immediately after the Department of Justice notified the White House counsel of the situation, the White House counsel briefed the president and a small group of the senior advisors. The White House counsel reviewed and determined that, that there is not an illegal issue, but rather a trust issue. During this process, it's important to note that the president did not have his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, who he trusts immensely, approved by the Senate. When the President heard the information as presented by White House counsel, he instinctively thought that General, counsel, General Flynn did not do anything wrong, and the White House counsel's review corroborated that. It is not ordinary for an incoming National Security Advisor to speak with his counterparts about the issues of concern to them. In fact, he spoke with over 30 of his counterparts throughout the transition. As Charles Krauthammer said last night, it is, quote, perfectly reasonable for him to do so. The issue here was that the president got to the point where General Flynn's relationship misleading the vice president and others, or the possibility that he had forgotten critical details of this important conversation, had created a critical mass and an unsustainable situation. That's why the president decided to ask for his resignation, and he got it. The irony of this entire situation is that the president has been incredibly tough on Russia. He continues to raise the issue of Crimea, which the previous administration had allowed to be seized by Russia. His ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, stood before the UN Security Council on her first day and strongly denounced the Russian occupation of Crimea. As Ambassador Haley said at the time, the quote, dire situation in eastern Ukraine is one that demands clear and strong condemnation of Russian actions. President Trump has made it very clear that he expects the Russian government to de-escalate violence in the Ukraine and return Crimea. At the same time, he fully expects to and wants to be able to get along with Russia, unlike previous administrations, so that we can solve many problems together facing the world, such as the threat of ISIS and terrorism. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer there 
earlier on Tuesday. And, you know, the big thing there is trust. And so when you think about President Trump and who he surrounds himself with, the goal is that he needs to be able to trust his advisors, really with any president. But when you think of President Trump's leadership style, you think of trusted a trusted core of people. You know, when he was running his businesses, his kids were his trusted core of people. And he has very few people in his campaign and to his administration that he trusts. Um, obviously, um, Reince Priebus is one of those uh, top trusted advisors. And even Priebus today was getting ripped apart uh, by the media. It seems to be unsubstantiated. Um, a lot of the uh, allegations that Priebus was upset, that Priebus um, uh, messed up, um, and they were blaming him. There were a lot of different reports. But let's bring it down to trust because that's what Spicer said. And I could see President Trump saying, hey, listen, how can I trust you if you were going to, quote, mislead our administration. And it, frankly, he had to get rid of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Now, I don't think it was Flynn's fault, and I'll tell you why. I think that Flynn was doing, legally was doing what he um, what he can do, which is talk to ambassadors and try to start um, the administration off. He wants to start his job running. The problem is Washington, D.C. does not work that way. Now, President Trump is not establishment, and he's not Washington, D.C. And Michael Flynn is a very well-respected general. And so he doesn't work to bureaucracy. He's not a bureaucrat. He doesn't, um, he doesn't think of things as slow pace, put it that way. He wants to get things done as much as the president wants to get things done, and he's working at lightning speed. Congress is not, and that's how government was intended to be, but really not this inefficient and effective that we're seeing right now, the gridlock in Washington between the two parties that we discussed yesterday as well. And so I think Flynn's intentions were good. He wasn't talking to Russia because— He's cronies with Putin, which is the um, stupid, uh, poor, alleged um, allegations against him, right? That he's, well, he's bunnying up to Putin and Trump is praising Putin. No, Trump just doesn't want to have any issues. And we're going to talk about a test that he has uh, in a little bit that Russia is testing him. Uh, and that involves, uh, involves a military move. And so I don't blame Flynn. I really think he wanted to start, you know, hit his job off running. He, he wanted to put himself in a place where the administration could start to build relationships with countries and work to defeat radical Islamic terrorism. But government doesn't allow you to do that. And so you have a situation where Democrats, the establishment, they want to know. They want to know all these details about the calls and everything. And okay, sure, go ahead. I think there are more important things to, to for Washington to handle. But they always get caught up in these scandals because the media drives it, and it's in the mainstream because it's the headline news. There are obviously, and we're going to talk about the more substance today that happened. But 
Spicer said this, and I agree, that these White House leaks should be a major story, if not the story. And the White House leaks are egregious. And I could go through them, and I'm going to. But I don't think it was Flint's fault. I think really Flint's intentions were good. But the problem is he went about it the wrong way. And once you try to cover it up, it, it, you know, or you just lie or you don't remember, misremembered, you know, that whole thing with – um, who said misremembered? Roger Clemens, I think, uh, used that term at the steroid investigation. But, you know, when you don't remember these key facts and pass them along – to the top administration, and at that point, the transition head was Mike Pence. And I don't blame the vice president for being a little PO'd today with Flynn. And Flynn had to go because he lied. If he didn't lie, then I think President Trump backs him up. He sticks with his people. But the whole thing here is trust. And how could President Trump trust him if he's going to lie? So I think there was a bad move on Flynn's part to lie. I don't think his intentions were bad. The lying was egregious. A bad, bad mistake, and the White House has to learn from this. Now, before I get on to these intelligent leaks, which I think are very important and should be a major story, I just want to quote the New York Times today because, you know, there's a lot of talk about fake news. In fact, universities, and we're going to talk to uh, that NYU professor that we had on the show uh, on Sunday, Michael Rechtenwald, about college campuses. And there are a lot of college campuses that are doing um, conferences on fake news, right? How do we protect against fake news? And in that conversation, they accuse the Trump administration of pushing fake news. Well, the New York Times today perpetuated fake news. They used a tweet from someone pretending to be Michael Flynn. It was a fake account. And uh, that fake account said, but if a, um, if a, uh, I can't read my own handwriting, but uh, if the goal is what's needed for this administration to continue to take this apart, uh, uh, to, uh, nation forward, uh, I... Oh, if he needs to be the fall guy is basically what the, the fake tweet said. It doesn't matter. I can't read my own handwriting. That's how <laughs> that's how bad my handwriting is. I'm like a doctor. Um, but be that as it may, what the point of the fake tweet was that he would be that he's the fall guy and then if he has to be the fall guy, fine. Well, that was a fake tweet. And that was in the New York Times Tuesday. Can't happen. It just can't happen. If you are an editor, I'm sorry, you have to be on top of that. You have to double-check everything. Isn't that what you're taught in journalism school? And if not, then shame on the professors. So if you want to talk about fake news, that's perpetuating fake news. The, the missing bus story that was false the, on Twitter, that was fake, and people believed it. And you see thousands of retweets. They want to believe that he took the bust of Martin Luther King out because they want to believe that he's a racist. They want to believe these things. They have an agenda, whether it be the media or the, the audience. They want 
to actually, they have these preconceived notions and they want to believe these certain things. That's why they watch news that fits their ideologies. They want to believe it. And it's just not true. And then you see the thousands of retweets on the fake tweet and you see a couple of retweets on the correction. It's a problem. So I really don't blame the Trump administration for being aggressive when it comes to the media. They fawned over Obama. There are many examples of that. Now, let me get to these White House intelligence leaks because these are dangerous for national security. Um, Early set of leaks came over the summer after Trump claimed that analysts in his first classified briefing as a Republican nominee told him through their body language that they disagree with President Obama's policies. Now, this sort of thing, intelligence professionals pride themselves on not releasing, but somehow it seeped out to the media that President Trump had some body language that indicated he was against Obama's policies in a classified briefing. The next day, an NBC News report cited six current and former senior officials, they always name, you know, senior officials say, who described Flynn as repeatedly interrupting the analysts at the classified briefing. Flynn called the report total bull blank. You fill in the blank. Then in January, shortly before Trump's inauguration, multiple senior intelligence officials told CNN about classified briefings from intelligence officials about a dossier that claims Russian operatives had compromising information about him. BuzzFeed reported on it. It has been proven to be not true. In February, senior U.S. officials provided the Washington Post with an account of Trump's testy phone call with the Australian Prime Minister, contradicting the White House version of events, and the Australian Prime Minister came out and said we had a good dialogue. And then last week, current and former U.S. officials told the White House that Lieutenant General Michael Flynn discussed U.S. sanctions against Russia in a phone call with the ambassador, contrary to public assertions by Trump officials. All of these leaks that are coming out from the intelligence community is dangerous. And listen, you know I am the first person to respect our police, our law enforcement, those operatives that risk their lives every day, whose lives were risked when a certain someone used a private email server, and I went nuts about that because I know that if their names get out, they're dead. So I am the first one to back law enforcement and the intelligence community. But these top U.S. intelligence officials have an agenda. And a lot of them were in the Obama administration, do not agree with non-establishment populist nationalist views, and they're sticking it to Trump. Uh, Elliot Cohen, a counselor at the State Department under George W. Bush, said this is unprecedented. Um, She said that all administrations leak, and maybe particularly early on, but what surprises her is the extent with which you have people leaking against each other. Again, very, very dangerous, and it needs to be fixed, and they need to do an internal investigation. 
and that should not be communicated with the media. Obviously, it's probably going to be leaked. They need to figure out where these leaks are coming from because there are egregious leaks. There are minor leaks, but some of these really dangerous ones make our national security, they put it at risk. Now, how, you ask? Well, when Russia sees we're a mess, when other nations like North Korea see they can't even control their own house, it makes the administration look bad, looks at our country look bad, and they're laughing at us, as they did under Obama. So we need to stop it. It's not Trump's fault. It's not the Trump administration's fault, I don't think. Looks like it's the high intelligence officials. But, you know, there's outrage over, you know, Flynn's communications with Russian ambassadors. That's his job when he got in. So I have no problem for him preparing for a job. I have the problem with the covering it up and not telling vice president-elect at that time, Mike Pence, the truth. And President Trump, trust is important with anything. With life, trust is important. But the problem that I have is the phony outrage when, you know, Hillary Clinton, I referred to her before, when she has conversations with leaders who donate from foreign countries, donate to the Clinton Foundation, that the Clintons get rich as Bill Clinton is president, as they're both in politics, no one gets rich in politics except the Clintons, and they don't take that investigation seriously. Uh, she has a private email server set up in her Chappaqua house, which is clearly against the law. 110 classified emails were sent or received on that server that we know of, that that was probably accessed by Russia and other foreign entities. And so where's the outrage there? Where's the outrage when over 50% as the Associated Press reported, over 50% of State Department meetings were with those donators to the Clinton Foundation? Where was the outrage there? Besides certain outlets, besides conservatives, where was the outrage over that? And you're getting a little outrage over Flynn preparing to do his job, I don't get that. Now, in the media, where was the substance? Where was the investigative reporting? Now, there are some fantastic reports, but what are the headlines? What are people – because today's world – I was pondering this today. Today's world, it's everything about immediacy. It's the alerts. It's the tweets. And if you are in the media as someone like I am, you need to, yeah, create a need for yourself and get views. But at the same time, you need to have some sort of integrity to put out substantive things. What do people care about? Now, you know, I get it. You can make the argument that President Trump was able to, with a simple message, get a lot of following because people don't understand the very deep substantive issues. But I would think, I would argue, that publications like The Times and Wall Street Journal and Washington Post and 
all of these TV networks and, and uh, even radio, it's their obligation to inform, like I'm doing, trying to do anyway, is to inform, investigate, and tell you what you need to know every day. And what, you know, when you're in an election year, what are the issues? When someone asks, well, what would a wall do on the southern border? Well, we could talk about the increase in ICE agents and the drug cartels and the statistics behind it. We could talk about um, the extreme vetting policy. And you could look at the contract that President Trump put out as a promise to the American people. And so that leads me to outsider versus establishment. President Trump promised to drain the swamp. The swamp being the establishment politicians that, in his words, are all talk and no action. And I think, and I said this before the election, that the reason why a lot of this, these Republicans are not in favor of Trump or, or weren't coming out and supporting him was, well, yeah, they thought he would lose, and they thought he would lose bad, uh, badly, uh, I should say, and... Well, everyone thought that, but I think they were afraid of losing their job because what's the incumbency rate? Over 90% that they're voted back in. So I think they were afraid of their jobs and that President Trump would shake things up and not be afraid to call people out on Twitter or by using the bully pulpit. But Twitter is the fireside chat of today. And so we see the obstruction mostly by the Democrats, but we see the political machinations that are going on. It's really a dysfunction of government. And you talk about gridlock. If you are paying attention to politics for the first time in your life, because this was such a riveting election cycle, and you were paying attention to it for the first time, I think you can understand where the gridlock comes from. There are political disagreements. There are lobbyists. And how am I going to get reelected? And I think that's what it all comes down to. President Trump doesn't owe anybody anything. If you think so, tweet at me, Facebook, whatever. Message me. Go through my website. Let me know. What do you, who owes or to whom does President Trump owe a favor because I don't think he does at all and that's where he could say what he means and means what he says and it's the non-establishment politics the nationalism versus the establishment that's holding on to a thread that wants to desperately be in power and it's their livelihood and for President Trump, he made his living billions of dollars. He's taking a $1 salary. Tell me, to whom does he owe a favor? Now, let me move on from that. Because on that related subject, Obamacare, that the Republicans are moving very, very slow on because we haven't heard about it. Well, Humana today comes out and they say they are going to pull out of the Obamacare exchanges in 2018. 
That's right. Umana is the first major insurer to say that it is dropping out of the individual market for 2018. This is from the CEO, Bruce Broussard. He said in a statement, quote, Based on our initial analysis of data associated with the company's healthcare exchange membership following the 2017 open enrollment period, we continue to see further signs of an unbalanced risk pool. Therefore, the company has decided that it cannot continue to offer coverage for 2018. President Trump did tweet about this today, saying Obamacare continues to fail. Humana to pull out in 2018 will repeal, replace, and save health care for all Americans. That's the promise. The promise is to make sure that Americans out the all part is going to bring the, the media headlines. And I'll tell you why. Because does that mean he's in favor of single payer? No, we dismantled that. We talked about how socialism, healthcare doesn't work. And you look at Canada and the extreme wait times that they have. It's worse than the VA. Actually, I don't think anything's worse than the VA. Um, another major topic that we will continue to discuss this week, in fact. But the healthcare system is a mess. It's blowing up. You have a 118% increase in premiums in Arizona. It's through the roof everywhere. Premiums and deductibles. You can't even use it in many cases. And the quality isn't good. It's not like you're keeping your doctor. <laughs> it's not like you are getting um, quality health insurance at a fair price, on time, under budget. You're getting none of that. There are, there are really... This is the only thing Obamacare did. It got more people insured. And it helped. Okay, maybe it helped at the margins a little bit. To be fair. But in reality, it doesn't help Americans. It hurts Americans. And they should be able to use their own money. Health savings accounts is what President Trump has proposed. And get rid of the state lines. Increase competition. Because that reduces prices. That's how the private sector works. You can't – the way the American system is set up, and it's really so um, bulky, for lack of a better term, it's very difficult to use the private sector and government because it just doesn't mesh. And so where are the Republicans moving on this? Because Paul Ryan and the Republicans have been promising repeal and replace – all of I, all I've heard, repeal and replace for years, since Obamacare was even on the platform. Where where's the talk about it? They don't have a plan yet. Where have they been? Obamacare was put into law in 2010. It's been seven years. Where the hell have they been? They should have a plan written. And in a file cabinet on top of their desk at this point and ready to put forth on the floor. They didn't even believe Trump would win. Part of the problem. And the second part, bureaucracy. It never works. Other things that are happening, well, uh, the Fed today, um, Janet Yellen had a testimony. She defended the Federal Reserve's oversight of Wall Street in the years since the financial crisis, arguing that banks are safer, have kept lending and 
remain profitable. And then, you know, I love how this is written. Who wrote this? Bloomberg wrote this. I don't love how it's written. I'm being sarcastic. Despite claims by the Trump administration and Republican lawmakers, their regulations have crippled economic growth. The word claims make it, makes it seem as if what he's saying is false. Regulations do cripple economic growth. Businesses can't hire. Businesses spend an excess amount of time away from the day-to-day and helping people whom they serve. So that's false. I mean, uh, now President Trump, by the way, on Janet Yellen said during the campaign, well, if she's too political, we need to get rid of her. But she's going to stay out the rest of the year until her term is up because she's not supposed to be in a political position. But Elizabeth Warren today and the Senate Democrats try to make this a political point that, oh, President Trump is crazy and um, we need to maintain Dodd-Frank and all this stuff. This Elizabeth Warren, I call her Goofy. (laughs) Oh, she's Goofy, all right. And so the Dodd-Frank Act um, has made lenders less competitive. It's We talked about this uh, last week that it's hurts the community banks and helping the big banks. The too big to fail. Spicer, I think, talked about this today. I think it was Spicer. Yeah, it was. It was Sean Spicer who said today that the intention, it actually worked the opposite way because it ended up sustaining too big to fail. That the, the big banks who can pay for these regulations are fine. The small banks suffer. So goes to show you the power of money. So that was another major business story today as uh, President Trump also signed an executive order to continue to um, repeal Dodd-Frank. Now, let's move towards national security. And then we'll get back on um, education. Uh, Russian spy ship spotted patrolling just 70 miles off the coast of Delaware. Okay, the first major test for the United States. So President Trump now has a predicament here. This ship was last spotted off the coast of Florida in 2015, and before then near the U.S. Navy ballistic missile submarine base at Kings Bay, Georgia. And now it's off the coast of Delaware. It is the first such move by Russian military under a Trump presidency. They are testing President Trump. And so now he has to be tough. Let's not have a red line situation like we had in Syria, that if they use weapons against their own people, Obama promised that he would act on the Assad regime. That, of course, did not happen. They did nothing. So let's not make that mistake, and we need to now show some muscle. This is what we need. Um, And we're going to talk about defense preparedness coming up later because we are not prepared militarily and you're going to be shocked the money that we spend on defense and then the money we took away from defense and we have outdated equipment we'll get into that um quickly on education because we had that whole interview yesterday which by the way is up on itunes is up on elacurso.com that interview with daniel blanchard uh, on the podcast section that is on yesterday's podcast um that podcast was up today 
had some tech issues if you were listening at the beginning of the podcast. Um, I know people watch on Facebook Live when we're actually recording the podcast, so that's why I'm repeating myself here. Repetition's not always a bad thing, right? Um, so that interview with Daniel Blanchard, we talked about education, we talked about school choice, and we talked about what Betsy DeVos wants to do, which a lot of people are concerned. Is she going to um, privatize education? Is she going to um, uh, hurt uh, unions, uh, obviously the unions are scared, um, and that's a Democrat base, although a lot of union members voted for Trump. You have to remember that. Now, the labor unions were uh, impressed by Trump when they met with him on his first week. President Trump is not a typical politician. He's not a typical Republican. He's not, uh, he doesn't really, he's got a mix of views, which is good. He's not really an ideologue. Not an ideologue at all. So, the education plan, common sense. He met with Secretary Betsy DeVos and other educators at the White House today. Just take a listen to uh, this clip so you get an idea of what happened today. Trump and Betsy DeVos, the education secretary. As I said many times in my campaign, we want every child in America to have the opportunity to climb the ladder to success. Uh, I want every child also to have a safe community, and we're going to do that very much. We're going to be helping you a lot a great school and someday to get a really well-paying job or better or better own their own company and a lot of people are looking at that but it all begins with education and that's why we're here this morning and i'm here also to celebrate a little bit with betsy because we started this journey a long time ago having to do with choice and so many other good things with education and i'm so happy that that all worked out uh, right now too many of our children don't have the opportunity to get that education that we all talked about. Millions of poor, disadvantaged students are trapped in failing schools at this crisis, and it really is a crisis of education and communities working together, but not working out, and we're going to change it around, especially for the African-American communities. It's been very, very tough and unfair, and I know that's a priority, and it's certainly a priority of mine. That's why I want every single disadvantaged child in America, no matter what their background or where they live, to have a choice about where they go to school. And it's worked out so well in some communities where it's been properly run and properly done, and it's a terrific thing. Charter schools in particular have demonstrated amazing gains and results. And you look at the results, we have cases in New York City that have been amazing in providing education to disadvantaged children and the success of so many different schools that I can name throughout the country that I got to see during the campaign. I went to one in Las Vegas. It was the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen. And they've done a fantastic job. So there are many, many such schools, and we want to do that on a large-scale basis. We can never lose sight of the connection so that's President Trump with uh, Betsy DeVos was next to him and other educators from charter schools and, and so forth. And President Trump made it a point to talk about the inner cities. Remember we told you the story about Ben Carson on a previous podcast. I don't remember when, otherwise I would tell you. The days just kind of flow into each other. Um, but Ben Carson's story and the fact that he grew up in Detroit, wasn't a good student, his mom told him you have to read he started reading and he got out of 
what he was seeing his friends literally dying from drugs and gangs, and he got out of that. And what we need to do is allow parents to choose what schools are best for their own children. I think that makes sense. That's not to say public schools aren't good, and we talked about that at length in yesterday's podcast with an expert in that field. But you have to be able to have an education system where we are competing with people around the world, not taking people in from around the world and they're killing us as far as education is concerned, and then they go back home and they work there. If you really want to have American jobs here in this country, and this is what President Trump went on to say, that our education system has to lead to jobs. The whole goal of going to school, think about it this way, college, use that as an example. Okay, college is fun in some regards for some people. College is fun, you know, you meet new people, whatever. A lot of people party, the whole, you know, that whole scene. But the goal of college is to learn, ultimately, to learn a trade that you're passionate in, hopefully passionate in, because if you never, if you love your job, you never really work a day in your life. At least that's a phrase that I have been inspired by. And so if you learn that trade and you have a job, college and education did its did its job. Its purpose is to teach, to foster growth and learning, and to allow you to get the best possible job that you are passionate in, in a field that you will thrive in and that will add to our economic development as a nation. That's that's the whole purpose of education. Correct me if I'm wrong. And we'll talk about education tomorrow because education is not doing its job in terms of indoctrination. But away from the politics for a second, this is an apolitical thing. Kids need to go to school and learn. And to be caught up in gang violence and drugs is a real shame on the people who allow it to happen. That's fostered by sanctuary cities and sanctuary campuses. And it's fostered by the politicians who say a lot but ultimately do not act. So it is time for a change. And hopefully President Trump is a person who actually changes it. Because we need a shake-up in the educational system. One last story, then we're going to take a quick break and get to some more stories including defense preparedness. A New York Times reporter, I'll on the time today, New York Times reporter apologizes for calling First Lady Melania Trump a, quote, a hooker. Correct. That's what a New York Times reporter said. Now, he does not cover politics. He's a feature reporter. His name is Jacob Bernstein. And this came out because Emily Ratajkowski, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Emily Ratajkowski, she's uh, a model, and she tweeted that she sat next to a journalist from the New York Times last night, and so that was, I guess, Monday night or Sunday night, um, who told me, I guess it was maybe at the Grammys, who told me that, quote, Melania is a hooker, okay? And so this reporter had the audacity to say this, and so, and this model is a Bernie Sanders supporter, by the way, so it's nothing, and she said it has nothing to do with politics. 
you cannot do this to our first lady. And listen, you gotta hope that the first lady and her son, by the way, Baron, are not put in the spotlight like this because let's be fair. The president, okay, he's on limits. But kids, off limits. And you cannot say something like this. And it was egregious. Obviously, the reporter has since apologized, but that's a, uh, a bad mistake there. Uh, and a, um, he's been, time said that they reprimanded him, um, as they should. Uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about defense preparedness. Um, you're not going to believe with the military how depleted we are when we spend over $600 billion a year on it. Where's the money going to? I don't know. But we need more in defense, less than other things. So we'll talk about that. Um, also, a former Obama staffer says why they never use the term radical Islamic terrorism. He wrote an op-ed in the Times, actually, uh, this morning. Why, why didn't they call it radical Islamic terrorism? And what does he say about Trump using it? We'll get into that when we come back on this Valentine's edition of the Neil A. Cursor Show podcast. Straightforward talk that drives the political establishment crazy. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. Period. What, like with a cloth or something? I don't know how it works digitally at all. <laughs> Neil Caruso is on the air and telling it the way it is as you deserve. It's the Neil Caruso Show Podcast. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. Or not. M2. Or not. M2. Need a little help? Aren't you going to do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. A ranger station. I'd like to report a bear hug. Okay. I put out my campfire and Smokey Bear hugged me. So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's just letting you know you did good. Bear hug from Smokey Bear. Status update. I'm going to let you go now. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. want to win we're gonna win so much you may even get tired of winning and you'll say please please it's too much winning neil a caruso is winning every day this is the neil a caruso show podcast on neilacaruso.com and on itunes subscribe now all right we are back here to that quick break um why didn't the obama administration say the words radical islamic terrorism uh the Former Undersecretary of State, his name is Richard Stengel, um, he said that, quote, I would not and could not utter that phrase. No one in the Obama administration could or did. We used the much less specific term violent extremism, as in countering violent extremism, which is 
what we call much of our anti-Islamic state efforts, according to this Undersecretary of State for the Obama administration. So, political correctness. True. And he admitted to the political correctness. He also said that the reason was a practical one, according to him. He said that to defeat radical Islamic extremism, we needed our Islamic allies, the Jordanians, the Emirates, the Egyptians, and the Saudis. And they believe that um, the term, though our Islamic allies believe that the term unfairly vilified a whole region, um, which obviously is understandable because what do you hear all the time uh, from the left? Um, well, really from anyone is obviously uh, we, when you talk about radical Islam, you have to make the distinction that it's radical. That's why you use the term radical Islam, because you're not referring to the Muslim religion as a whole. You're referring to the radical version of it where they take the Quran by word for word, and they believe that it is their God-given duty to kill people who think otherwise. That's what Sharia law is all about. So for us to be taking advice from the Saudis is really alarming. Um, the undersecretary said in this op-ed in the Times today, um, abandon the, fine, abandon the name, but let's not abandon the strategy. So what's the strategy? Well, he said, first let's acknowledge that it's working. The Islamic State is a military force, much less a caliphate, is on the ropes in Iraq and Syria. On the ropes. It's like the JV team, remember that. The group has not had a military victory in a year and a half, the flow of foreign fighters into Iraq and Syria is down by 90%, according to the Defense Department. The liberation of Mosul is on the horizon. Um, he also says that the, uh, King Abdullah of Jordan says this is their fight and we have to stay out of it. So a little bit of isolationism, which is what President Trump has been accused of, but uh, clearly he wants to increase the American stance and position in the world. And so that our allies, or real allies, like Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, will be at the White House Wednesday, can trust us. And then he goes on to say you have to make sure that you make the distinction between radical Islam and the Muslim religion. Um, he's done that. His uh, executive order that has since been held up in the courts made no mention of the Muslim religion. It was all about terrorism. But what was portrayed and what he was falsely accused of was being anti-Muslim, was being Islamophobic, to use an expression. And it just does not hold any substance to it. And if you get down to it, um, radical Islamic terrorism identifies the enemy and makes a clear distinction between the law-abiding Muslims that we have here that we need their help to identify the radical ones so we can get them out. And then those that are radicalized online or come over here and want to kill law-abiding Americans who believe in freedom and the U.S. Constitution. There's a big distinction, and it's important that we continue to use the words radical Islamic terrorism. And not just identifying the enemy, but then using the community and getting the community trust to help us in the fight. Because 
it doesn't help anybody. And that's where sanctuary cities go wrong in the fact that it actually hurts the minority communities. And this comes from an immigration agent who told me on the show on Sunday that it's the minorities that are hurt by it. Because they, by not speaking up, put themselves at risk. And if they do speak up, and they're let back out, the the criminal aliens are let back out into the community, they will retaliate. And they know that. That's why they keep quiet. But if we grant them, if if we give them a path to citizenship or a visa, which exists, by the way, it's in the law as it exists, if we just enforce our laws, we'll be better for it. Enforcing the laws. That's another thing, by the way. The whole ICE raids of the weekend, California... And other places, Phoenix. That was actually administered, approved by the Obama administration. It's in law. They committed crimes. All the Trump administration is doing is following through. And Barack Obama deported over two and a half million illegal immigrants. Criminals included. So where were all of the protests? Where were all of the refugees welcome signs when President Obama did it? When he shut down the refugee program for six months? Where was the outrage then? I didn't see any. Um, Military preparedness. The F-A-18 Hornet has been the Navy's frontline combat jet. And the Navy's ability to use these planes is now greatly hindered as more than 60% of these jets are out of service. That number is even worse than the Marine Corps. 74% of its F-18s, some of the oldest in service, are not ready for combat operations. There's an erosion of readiness across all branches of the U.S. Armed Forces that's from a military report there's deepening concern for ranking military members and lawmakers in both houses of congress top service branch officials sounded the alarm in a pair of congressional hearings last week about how bad the problem has become the annual defense spending budget is more than 600 billion dollars each of the branches has asked to increase the 2017 defense budget by more than 30 billion to purchase new jet fighters and armored vehicles, as well as improved training. Now, this request from the panel of a four-star military officers goes with President Trump's promise to reinvest in a depleted fighting force. Those are the statistics. Those are the facts. How can you lead peace through strength with 60% of your jets out of service? And then, furthermore, you talk about the defense sequester. You've heard that term before. Let me explain to you what that is. The Budget Control Act of 2011, it sets limits on how much could be spent on defense through 2021 while exempting money provided for overseas warfighting. Between 2011 and 2014, the Pentagon's budget fell by more than $100 billion and across-the-board spending limits known as the Washington, uh, known as uh, the uh, the sequester in Washington. Um, and that was triggered in 2013, which forced reductions that led to widespread concern the military services would be unprepared to fight. And generals are warning about this, and they have been warning about it, and so is President Trump. 
We have more threats in our country every day than we've ever had, and we have the least prepared military. That is alarming and disturbing. And you should rightfully be concerned as an American about that. I think I got to everything that I wanted to today. I'll tell you, there's a lot every single day, and it's important that you understand where the substance is, though. Because without it, you know, you're not going to really understand what uh, what is going on in the country. Um, so you do have to um, listen to this podcast every day, uh, and we'll tell you what you need to know, what's going on, what is the real story, and all that good stuff. Um, so we will be back here tomorrow. Now tomorrow, we have Michael Rechtenwald on the program, the NYU professor who is shut down for his beliefs, who's called a Nazi. We'll talk to him about college campus craziness and what he calls authoritarianism on colleges. So we'll talk to him for the full podcast tomorrow. Uh, breaking news will get to you as well. Um, and then on Thursday, we do have a veteran on the program. He runs Veterans Health Alliance on Long Island, and he's a combat vet served in Afghanistan. He'll be on the program on Thursday. So we'll talk to you. Subscribe on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, all at Neil A. Caruso. Check out neilacaruso.com for all the news that you need to know and keep up to date with me every day as we roll on. We're in the, I guess, the fourth week now of the Trump administration. And we are making America great again every day. We're doing our part here, just so you know. Big League America first. We will make America great again. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Thanks for spending it with me. Have a good night.